Good morning, everyone. My name is Juan Manuel Gomez Robledo. I am the Deputy Permanent Representative of Mexico to the United Nations. I am also a member of the International Commission, where I have acted as a Special Rapporteur on the provisional application of treaties, and that would be the topic uh, which I will entertain you today. I thank the United Nations Audiovisual Library of International Law for its invitation to contribute to the vast collection of the library, which is an essential reference for students, scholars, and professionals of international law. The Audiovisual Library plays a fundamental role for a better and wider dissemination of international law and thereby contributes to the strengthening of the rule of law at the international plane. On this occasion, I will address the question of the provisional application of treaties and in particular the guide that I prepared in my capacity as Special Rapporteur of the, of the International Law Commission between 2012 and 2021. My presentation will be divided into, into two sections. First, I will explain the background that led the International Law Commission to include the, the issue of provisional application of treaties in its program of work, with a focus on the work that I have developed as a Special Rapporteur of the Commission for this topic. Later, in the second part of my presentation, I will explain the main points of the contents of the Guide for the Provisional Application of Treaties that was adopted in 2021 by the Commission and subsequently by the UN General Assembly. I will start by referring to the inclusion of this very topic, Provisional Application of Treaties, in the program of work of the International Commission and the reports of the Special Rapporteur that have been submitted to the Commission. As I have already mentioned, in 2012, the Commission decided to include the topic Provisional Application of Treaties in its program of work, and I had the honor of being appointed uh, a special rapporteur in accordance with the statute of the Commission. The provisional application of treaties is stipulated in identical terms in Article 25 of the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and in Article 25 of the 1986 uh, Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties between states and international organizations or between international organizations. Both Articles 25 establish that, and I quote, paragraph 1, a treaty or a part of treaty is applied provisionally pending its entry into force if a. the treaty itself so provides, or b 
the negotiating states have in some other manner so agreed. Paragraph 2. Unless the treaty otherwise provides or the, the negotiating states otherwise agreed, the provision application of a treaty or a part of a treaty with respect to a state shall be terminated if that state notifies the other states which the treaty with which the treaty is being provisionally applied of its intention not to become a party to the treaty. End of quote. Of course, this um, provision has to be uh, adapted in the case of the 1986 Vienna Convention, where it's not exclusively about states, but states and international organizations, or between international organizations. But the two Articles 25, as I said before, are uh, written in identical terms. In other words, the law of treaties establishes the very possibility that a treaty or a part of a treaty can be applied before the formalities and conditions necessary for its entry into force have been fulfilled in the domestic um, plane and also in the uh, international one. This is a provision that, at first glance, offers a simple legal regime that would not seem to pose any major difficulty. However, neither of the two conventions establish the procedural aspects that states and international organizations have to resort to in their contractual relations with the purpose of provisionally applying a treaty. And perhaps more importantly, Article 25 also does not refer to the legal effects of provisional application as such. I highlight the issue of legal effects because after working on the matter for almost a decade, I have found that this is the most important aspect of the study undertaken by the International Law Commission. The starting point for the incorporation of this issue into the program of work of the ILC was a syllabus uh, prepared by the Italian jurist Giorgio Gaglia, who was a member of the Commission and later on a judge of the International Court of Justice. In his study, Giorgio Gaglia had revealed some preliminary conclusions. First, that the practice of states is not uniform, judging by the diversity of clauses used to agree 
other provision or application of a treaty or part of a treaty. Second, that the legal effects of provision or application depend on a number of aspects that remained unanswered. And third, that despite the lack of clarity around those and other aspects, the very conditions for the provisional application of a treaty have to be found in the law of treaties itself. And, of course, uh, there will be a need also to look at other applicable rules of international law. Alongside these rather theoretical considerations, we must also ask ourselves uh, some practical questions. For instance, in what concrete situations have states and international organizations resorted to the provision of application of treaties? And moreover, what kind of problems does this legal uh, figure help to solve? In practice, there are four reasons, uh, which of course are not exhaustive, that usually explain the reasons behind provisional application. These are, uh, to put it into some kind of categories, emergency situations, the need for flexibility, precaution, and the preparation or the facilitation of the entry into force of the treaty concerned. I will now briefly um, address each of them. First, the emergency situations. Let us think for instance, of treaties that, by their very nature, are um, generally aimed at being implemented more quickly uh, than others, um, like treaties related to the prevention of natural disasters, and which, of course, because of their very disruptive nature, require an immediate uh, response. In these situations, the provisional application of treaties is of central importance. And we can cite, for instance, the two uh, treaties, um, the two multilateral conventions agreed upon in the, under the auspices of the International uh, Atomic Energy Agency on uh, after the Chernobyl accident on both the notification of a nuclear accident and on the prevention of a nuclear accident. Uh, these two conventions were put into practice through um, provisional application um, and, of course, the emergency to which they, uh, that, uh, which they 
uh, are were supposed to to be the response um, explained the reason why states preferred uh, to apply them provisionally pending their entry into force. Second, I could uh, say that certain flexibility uh, is sometimes required to assume certain obligations in the application of a treaty, uh, like in the periods of time established for the entry into force of a treaty, which might be too long and may motivate provisional application to. And here I think about what happened when Syria, after being accused of the alleged use of chemical weapons in the uh, civil war taking place in Syria, was finally persuaded to join the uh, convention, the UN Convention on the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. The standard rule was that after Syria had adhered to the convention, a 30-day period of time had to elapse before the convention entered into force for Syria. That, in political terms, was a too long period to comply with and there was the need for Syria to, be a, to start implementing the convention immediately. In that case, nothing was provided for in the convention and the depository um, consulted uh, states parties to seek their views on whether they would object to an immediate um, uh, uh, provisional application uh, with, and in the absence of any objection it was agreed at the level of the Executive Council of the uh, organization that that could uh, be the case for Syria and therefore um, the uh, provisional application started from the very day in which um, Syria adhered or acceded, acceded uh, to the treaty. Um, second, um, or third situation, um, is the need for precaution, which is especially common in agreements with a significant political character that seek to establish or foster confidence that will prevent parties during the period preceding ratification and entry into force from changing their minds, for modifying their intention uh, to um, uh, join the treaty, uh, or even uh, may uh, stop any ratification process. And we can find several examples, for instance, in the, the arms control area when treaties, bilateral treaties between the former Soviet Union and the US uh, on uh, strategic uh, arms control or strategic reduction of, um, of weapons uh, were um, provisionally applied 
before the two parliaments um, give or gave their uh, final consent. And that, of course, fostered confidence and prepared or laid the path to, um, to ratification and uh, entry into force. And a fourth situation is the need or would be the need to contribute through provisional application to, uh, a, to the transition towards the entry into force, and in particular uh, to avoiding legal gaps between uh, two successive legal regimes that may undermine the final purpose of a treaty. And we can find a very good example uh, when we uh, agreed in 1994 on the agreement related to the uh, to, uh, part 11 of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which was about to enter into force, but where, uh, as you all know, a number of states were still reluctant to uh, ratify it uh, in absence of um, an interpretation about Part 11. Uh, we finally agreed that that ag agreement on Part 11 had to be provisionally applied if we really wanted um, the, 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 the accession or the ratification from industrialized countries to really come into play uh, at the same time as the, the entry into force of the Convention would take place, because the Convention would have uh, entered into force in any case because it has reached already the 60 um, states uh, necessary for its entry into force. So we had to combine the time of the entry into force with the provisional application of the agreement related to Part 11, and that allowed for a smooth transition to the, the entry into force of the Convention and to, the and to the ratification by all those who had been absent until then. So, I think uh, there are um, a number of reasons that explain uh, why states and international organizations from time to time um, feel the need to uh, resort to provisional application. And I may give a number of other examples, but I think that those that I have given uh, already um, portray the, the situation in which uh, states and international organizations are um, on a regular basis faced with and explain the result to these um, provision of the law of treaties. So if we come back now to the, the International, Commission, International Law Commission, um, I think you would, uh, will agree with me that it was important that uh, whatever product would have been developed uh, by the ILC had to be uh, a product of a practical nature, uh, which had been uh, of practical usefulness uh, to, for states and international organizations when 
they participate in international organizations and where one could uh, ask whether provisional application would be needed and later on, of course, in the process leading to the entry into force of that very treaty. So uh, it is important to give states, to provide states with practical tools for them to do their job. And of course, this is very important also, or in particular, for developing countries that may that face with limitations in terms of the availability of technical legal expertise and and those states require perhaps more than others practical tools to to facilitate their work for this very reason the the objective of the work of the international commission has been um, as it has been on other issues it has dealt with, was to uh, study uh, the legal regime surrounding uh, provisional application of treaties, uh, based, of course, on a very rigorous uh, study of the practice of states and of international organizations, uh, and to some extent those aspects uh, based on that very practice were not very clear, and to contribute to uh, determine uh, the clear, in a clear sense the legal regime applicable to provisional application of treaties. For this reason, uh, for these reasons, I very much hope that the guide to the provisional application of treaties, which was uh, finally adopted by the ILC, in 2021 will be useful uh, to states and international organizations. Now, if you allow me, I will refer to the development of the work that I uh, undertook as Special Rapporteur. As everyone knows, a special rapporteur of the International Law Commission uh, is uh, due to prepare um, the ground for his topic uh, through a number of reports that he or she uh, submits to the Commission and that are later debated in the plenary of the ALC. In my case, in the case of the Provisional Application of Treaties, uh, during almost 10 years of work, I did submit six reports. These reports can easily be consulted on the website of the Commission or here uh, in the website of the Audiovisual Library. And they will also be published soon uh, by the Secretariat in a volume of the UN Legislative Series, together with a guide uh, that I have developed, and um, likewise a succinct bibliography on the topic and the memoranda, very important ones, uh, that the Secretariat prepared as part of the compilation analysis of state practice will be available to. 
based on these reports, the series of guidelines that altogether make up the guide were, as you can imagine, gradually developed. Of course, it goes without saying that his work was constantly nourished by the comments of states and international organizations made in the annual debates of the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly and also in response to specific requests for input made uh, by the ILC. Besides, the debates within the ILC um, uh, after a report was submitted by the Special Rapporteur and the negotiating process in the drafting committee of the ILC constitute the indispensable feedback to guide uh, the Special Rapporteur in his work. And I must say that uh, in more than a way, the Special Rapporteur never imposes his or her views. These, what, whatever is adopted at the end by the ILC is the result of a collective uh, work where everything, including the most insignificant footnote, is subject to negotiation. I'm, it must also be said that throughout the treatment of the topic, various and very important concerns were raised both by members of the ALC, but also by member states, which were very useful and helped me to orient my, my work, where we always sought to strike a balance between um, all of them, since I've said, as I have said, the work of the Commission is a collective undertaking and thus cannot be uh, attributed exclusively to the opinions or preferences of the Special Rapporteur. One of the concerns that was always present was that the provisional application could lead to circumvent so to speak, the rules of domestic laws that govern the proceedings by which a state expresses its, concern, its consent to be bound by the treaty. These very valid concerns derive from the fact that in a number of cases, the legislation of several states clearly, explicitly prohibits uh, that state from resorting to provisional application. But more generally, the national legislation is silent on the matter. Therefore, the vast majority of states 
had to uh, develop a practice in the absence of um, indications coming from their national legislation. But it is also important to remind that the vast majority of states have or enjoy a political regime based on the separation of powers. And generally, it is the legislative branch, the legislative body, that decides whether ultimately a state consents to be bound by the treaty. It was therefore absolutely understandable that states approach the issue of provisional application of treaties with prudence, caution, if not with marked reservations. Doubts also arouse with regard to the distinction between the concept of provisional application and entry into force as such. The intention of the Commission was never and has never been at any time to motivate, to stimulate the resort to provisional application. But neither was it to discourage uh, any resort to it. Instead, uh, at the Commission, we focused on promoting a better understanding of how the provisional application of treaties works in practice, as well as by trying to clarify its scope and legal effects to provide legal certainty for its potential uses. For these reasons, as I have already indicated, the preference of the ILC was to develop a practical tool, such as the guide that was ultimately adopted, which would serve to uh, inform states and international organizations within the legal framework of the law of treaties and other applicable rules of international law about how and come they could resort to this possibility, which is, in any case, absolutely voluntary. It was thus uh, that from my third report that I presented as Special Rapporteur in 2015, that the first guidelines began to emerge uh, of what would eventually become uh, the, the whole guide uh, in uh, 2018 during the 70th uh, session of the Commission. In that year, the ILC adopted in first reading an initial version of 12 draft guidelines that were sent to the General Assembly for consideration of states and international organizations. 
the 2020 session of the ALC had to be postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So it was not until 2021, the 72nd session of the Commission, that the rapporteur's sixth and last report was reviewed and considered by the Commission. That sixth report incorporated, first of all, the very valuable comments and observations received from states and international organizations, and, of course, the Special Rapporteur had to make a choice in the variety of suggestions that he received. Uh, but I can say that I really uh, paid close attention to those suggestions and I did my best to incorporate most of them in my very last proposal to the ILC. The, the ILC then proceeded to carry out the second and final reading of the draft guide, which culminated uh, in its adoption last year, in 2021. Finally, based on the recommendation coming from the Commission, the General Assembly took note of the guide in its Resolution 76-113 of December 2021 and recommended uh, the, the wide dissemination of the guide and requested as well the Secretary-General to prepare a volume of the UN legislative series that will contain a set of relevant materials uh, on this uh, issue. I think that I have now more or less explained the background and gave you an overview uh, or a brief on how the study on the provisional application of treaties developed within the ILC. I would like now to make some specific comments about the guidelines themselves that make up the guide. Uh, and I think in this context, it is worth remembering that as it is the tradition now in the work of the ILC, the guidelines must be read in the light of the commentaries that accompany them because they form an integral part of the Commission's um, deliberations of the, on the matter. And that explains why even the commentaries are negotiated uh, within the Commission. So the, the guidelines need to be read in the light of the commentaries and vice versa. Let us now come to the guidelines one by one. After the first two guidelines that focus on the scope and the object of the guide to which I have already referred to in my previous explanation, guideline 3 and guideline 4 establish some aspects uh, that I would like to address now. 
guideline three reproduces what is established uh, verbatim uh, in Article 25, indicating that it is possible that provisional uh, that uh, to provisionally apply both the whole treaty, but also uh, part of it. For instance, and this is absolutely relevant, the practice of the European Union regarding the so-called mixed agreements with non-member states, with third states, which gives rise to the provisional application of the uh, trade uh, chapter of these agreements um, is uh, a feature that allows um, that chapter, the trade chapter, to uh, be immediately applied in uh, pending uh, the um, legislative approval of the whole agreement by the more than 27 uh, European Parliament, because you may know that in certain cases, like Belgium, there are more than one parliament. In fact, in Belgium, I think they have four parliaments, and in each of them, uh, treaties have to go through the uh, uh, approval process. Moving on with the guide, uh, I, if one uh, if read as a whole, guidelines three and four altogether raise two fundamental questions. First, when is an international treaty provisionally applied? And second, how is provisional application agreed uh, upon between states or between states and international organizations or between international organizations. Regarding the first question, I must remind you that the starting point of the work that culminated with the guide is again to be found in Article 25 of both Vienna Conventions. Therefore, in the same sense as those conventions, Guideline 3 indicates that, as a general rule, provisional application occurs in two basics, basic cases. First, if the treaty itself so provides, and um, and if um, one or more um, provisions in that regard are included in the text of the treaty, or it is otherwise agreed. And naturally, from this follows the second question. What are the other ways, the other means, by which states and international organizations can agree to provisional application of treaties? In this regard, Guideline 4 indicates some possibilities. By means 
of a separate treaty, of a treaty other than the treaty that will be applied provisionally, therefore in the absence of a clause contained in the main treaty, so to speak. And these other means may include, of course, a separate agreement, but also uh, other kind of instruments like an additional protocol, which might have the, the level of treaty, but perhaps um, less um, uh, other kind of instruments like memoranda of understanding or uh, even declarations or intent or even through other means of arrangements between the parties um, showing once again that provisional application of treaties is flexible by its very nature. Some examples of these other arrangements between states or international organizations can include resolutions or decisions arrived at uh, within international organizations or intergovernmental conferences if they reflect, provided that they reflect the agreement of the states or international organizations concerned, or also uh, one could foresee declarations uh, coming from a state or an international organization uh, if those declarations are uh, accepted by the other states or international organizations concerned. Uh, therefore, one uh, should caution that it has nothing to do with the regime pertaining to uni unilateral acts of states. This is different because the other states or international organizations need to uh, ag uh, accept the uh, declaration from a state. Uh, but th that is also a way for uh, a state that had no bearing with the, with the negotiation of the treaty to come later on and say, I am interested in provisionally applying this treaty if you, uh, I mean, you, the negotiating states, agree to that. Uh, but of course, these examples uh, are by no means exhaustive and are open, and everything is left, of course, to the very uh, will of the states. Uh, because what the Commission wanted to preserve by, by all means is the uh, very flexibility that is um, the raison d'être of the uh, provisional application. Subsequently, between Guideline 5 to 9, the guide refers to several aspects related to the uh, effects to the execution and to the effects of the provisional application of treaties, starting precisely 
with the question of when um, starts, when, when the commencement of um, the provisional application of a treaty takes place, to then uh, refer to uh, its legal effects. And later on, we had to deal with the question of reservations, the question of responsibility for breaching um, uh, an obligation uh, deriving from uh, the provisional application, and finally, the, the question of how to terminate the provisional application. Um, a first question uh, related to all these matters is what really marks the beginning of a treaty's provisional application. In this regard, Guideline 5 states that provisional application will begin, and I quote, on such date and in accordance with such conditions and, procedure, and procedures as a treaty provides or as it is uh, or as is otherwise agreed, end of quote. And this is again important to say again that everything uh, is, um, rests on the will of the parties. It is important to note that uh, the mention to the date, conditions, or procedure agreed upon by the parties uh, seeks to cover the various mechanisms used by states or international organizations to agree on the uh, beginning of the provisional application of a treaty in practice. So these are merely examples of um, the most usual ways of beginning uh, the uh, the um, provisional application. Uh, for example, a treaty, uh, uh, and we have several examples, can be uh, applied provisionally from the very moment of its signature or on a specific date uh, provided for, or in the case of multilateral treaties, following the decision of an international organization or an international um, organ uh, duly competent for that. We come now to Guideline 6, which addresses the very important and the very central question of the legal effects of uh, provisional application. It is uh, very important to clar clarify from the outset that the legal effects of the provisional application of a treaty suppose the creation of a legally binding obligation to apply the treaty or a part of it between the state or the international organizations concerned. And I want to underline that state practice confirms the existence of such a presumption in, for, in favor 
of the creation of a legally binding obligation to apply the treaty or part of a treaty uh, in question. It is also possible that the parties, uh, the negotiating states or international organizations, agree to something else, either in the treaty or in any of the other ways of agreeing on the provisional obligation that they might resort to. They can also, they can also very well agree on something different from legal obligation. But in the absence of that, um, the presumption is in favor of the creation of a legally binding obligation. I would also like to take this opportunity to comment on how this guideline was one of the points of um, huge or heated controversy uh, within both the Commission and also within the General Assembly. Originally, in its first version, Guideline 6 said, and I quote, provisional application of a treaty or part of it will create a legally binding obligation as if the treaty were in force. As if the treaty were in force. End of quote. This last sentence served the purpose of clarifying, at least that was what we felt at the time, uh, the legal effects of the provisional application. And at first sight, or at first uh, months, it was not the subject of much controversy. However, that that uh, way of phrasing it did not convince states since it led uh, almost naturally to the belief that both regimes are in fact identical and among all the consequences could lead to misunderstandings on the part of the leg legislative powers if the impression was created that provisional application was equal to entry into force. When we realized uh, about that, uh, we of course saw uh, the very dangers in which we will be uh, incurring. So, in order to avoid resorting to an analogy that could be excessive or at least misleading, it was decided to eliminate this expression as if the treaty were in force, because in the end it was not necessary to establish that kind of comparison between a treaty that is provisionally applied and uh, one that has entered into force because there is a fundamental difference. The provisional application of a treaty does not, does not deploy the full legal effects of a treaty that has entered into force. 
in other words, not, not all, just few of the provisions of the two Vienna Conventions are um, automatically applicable to provisional application. Um, and it is clear now that provisional application has a narrower scope than entry into force. And when we will come to the termination of provisional application, I think that that aspect will become even more clear. There are fundamental differences in the way one can terminate a treaty in, that is in force and uh, compared to a treaty that is just uh, being provisionally applied. On the other hand, another issue that caused some kind of controversy was the issue related to reservations. Since a number of countries and uh, members of the Commission consider uh, that any inclusion of any reference to, reservation, to reservations was of little use or even was absolutely useless due to uh, a lack of practice from states in that regard. Um, provisional application, as you all know, occurs in the vast majority of the cases in bilateral treaties in which uh, the formulation of reservations is at least unusual. Um, however, after um, heated debates and uh, reflection, other countries believed that it was better to at least include a reference to reservations as a non-prejudice clause, um, because despite, uh, if, in spite of the absence of practice on the matter, in fact, um, strictly on a legal point, nothing, absolutely nothing prevents uh, a negotiating state or uh, an international organization uh, to formulate reservations um, at the time of uh, provisionally uh, applying a treaty. One may ask, uh, of course, if that is really practical, since one could very well think that uh, because of the very flexible nature of provisional application, it is much easier to pick and choose which are the provisions that uh, might be the object of reservations and not include them in the regime of provisional application. But one can never know. Uh, there might be clauses that are very much intertwined and um, the regime of provisional application is wider, but however, one state may need to formulate a reservation with regard to one uh, uh, provision. So, in, in the end, the Commission felt 
that uh, we could leave that uh, as a um, non-prejudice clause. Um, as we saw when we uh, dealt with our uh, guideline six, the legal effect of the provisional application of the treaty is the creation uh, of a legally binding obligation to apply the treaty or part of it. Therefore, almost logically, uh, guideline eight establishes that in the event of a breach of these very obligation, international responsibility will be generated in accordance with applicable international law. Subsequently, Guideline 9, which is the most extensive, uh, the long uh, in, in the guide, refers to the various ways of terminating provisional application. It establishes the situations and conditions for the termination of the provisional application of treaties. In paragraphs 1 and 2, we find two possibilities for their termination as established in the two Vienna Conventions. First, that the provisional application concludes with the entry into force, which is uh, the expected and most frequent situation in view of the natural vocation of any treaty. And second, that unless parties, the parties have agreed otherwise, the provisional application of a treaty may also end when the party applying it provisionally notifies the other states or international organizations of its intention not to become a party to the treaty. That is a standard rule contained in Article 25. However, it is important to underline that during the preparation of the guide, we noted, studying the practice of states and international organizations, that uh, in some cases, um, the uh, termination of provisional application is not necessarily um, linked or a consequence of the decision of a state not to become a party to the treaty, but can also respond to other causes. Therefore, and again, um, reiterating or reaffirming the, the very flexibility that is enshrined in uh, the provisional application of treaties, paragraph 3 of guideline 9 takes up the situation and indicates that, and I quote, unless the treaty provides otherwise or it is otherwise agreed, a state or an international organization may invoke other grounds for terminating provisional application, end of quote. One of these reasons could be, for instance, that a state wishes to conclude the provisional application of a multilateral treaty for any reason, but still maintains its intention to later become a party tweet. Or also that faced with a breach of a multilateral treaty being provisionally applied, the state decides to terminate the provisional application of that treaty only to, with respect to that state that incurred in the breach, but not with respect to the other states or international organizations. 
So this paragraph um, uh, tries to, to, to catch uh, these other possibilities. This paragraph also includes um, a requirement to duly notify states or international organizations concerned of the termination. However, given the great variety of situations that may uh, arise, um, we uh, felt it was not uh, absolutely important, um, necessary to establish a time requirement for making that notification as it is otherwise provided in the Vienna Convention when it comes to uh, treaties that are in force. So there is no time requirement, but still we retain the requirement of notification. Finally, uh, taking into account the opinions of some states regarding their desire to include other situations, particularly in relation to the responsibility for the violation of obligations derived from the provisional application, paragraph 4 of that same guideline 9 indicates that the termination will not affect any right or legal situation created by virtue of the provisional application, and that is, of course, a standard rule of the law of treaties. Finally, the guide concludes with guidelines 10, 11, and 12, which uh, refer to various aspects relating uh, regarding the relationship between the provisional application and the internal or the domestic law of states and or the rules of uh, the international organization concerned. First, guideline 10 establishes that states and international organizations may not invoke uh, norms of their internal law or uh, internal rules uh, in the case of international organizations as a justification for the breach of an obligation derived from the provisional application of a treaty, and that comes, of course, as you all know, straight from Article 27 of the Vienna Convention. Um, and I want to be very clear about that. Uh, it is under the rules of their domestic law that states decide whether or not they accept provi the provisional application of a treaty. However, as the core of the guideline uh, states, once uh, states or international organizations have decided to provisionally apply a treaty, they cannot then invoke uh, domestic law to justify a breach uh, to the treaty that is subject to provisional application. Similarly, and also based on the Vienna Convention uh, conventions, guideline 11 indicates that in the event that the consent of a state or, as the case may be, or uh, of an international organization to provisionally apply a treaty has been manifested in violation of a norm of internal law regarding the competence to um, uh, express it, its consent to be bound by the treaty, that state may not invoke uh, that uh, uh, rule uh, 
as invalidating its consent unless, of course, if the violation is manifest and affects a norm of fundamental importance. And this is, of course, uh, derived from the Vienna Convention. Coming now to guideline 12, uh, it, that was a very important provision that was um, debated uh, um, for many uh, several years within the Commission, where a number of members and states believed that it was important to allow states to uh, agree on limitations to the provision application of treaty based on the domestic law. It, uh, and this is uh, very important uh, because, uh, especially for those states that have no uh, nothing in their domestic legislation on provision application, um, which is, as I said, the vast majority of states, it's important that parties freely uh, may decide that uh, certain rules of domestic law may uh, be applicable to limit the scope of provisional application. And it is much better to do it in the context of agreeing to that provisional application and avoid later on um, uh, disputes on uh, the extent of uh, the obligations assumed under uh, provision application. Therefore, guideline 12 establishes uh, that uh, the guide has to be understood without prejudice to the very right of states and international organizations to agree in the treaty itself or otherwise um, to agree on the provision application with the limitations that they consider uh, relevant according to their domestic law or internal rules of the organization. This is uh, also important because uh, the case law uh, on this issue has uh, proved uh, that um, if things are not clear from the outset, uh, there might be then misunderstandings and uh, disputes as uh, the Energy Charter Treaty uh, has proved, whose Article 45 has been subject to a huge controversy. And um, so it, this, is, this underlines the importance for states and international organizations to be very clear about which rules should, uh, of their internal or domestic law should be contained um, uh, to limit, if, uh, if that uh, is uh, uh, their wish, uh, their, the extent of their obligations under uh, provision application. Um, at the end of the guide, the Commission felt that it was um, advisable to annex um, examples of treaty provisions incorporating um, the uh, uh, 
examples of clauses on provisional application. Um, in the development of the work, we considered that these provisions could support and help states and international organizations uh, to have at hand in an illustrative manner um, and absolutely uh, not uh, prescriptive, uh, in, in no prescriptive way, uh, um, useful clauses for their uh, endeavors. Um, so we, we found a number of provisions that we organized in a way that can fit to the needs of negotiating states or international organizations. Um, I think that uh, we have uh, uh, made a general overview of um, the provisional application of treaties and of the work that I attempted to do uh, in my capacity as special rapporteur. Um, but of course, uh, more uh, is to be found in the reports and of course in the guide itself and in its commentaries. Um, what I tried to convey to you through this uh, presentation, through this lecture, has been that provisional application is by its very nature a flexible tool which is quite exceptional and should remain quite exceptional and is absolutely voluntary in nature. As uh, can also be seen, state practice has gone beyond the original role assigned to provisional application, which was at the very beginning very limited to just preparing for the entry into force. And now, as we have seen, states and international organizations resort to it for a number and, uh, of reasons. Uh, as I said, urgency, flexibility, precaution, uh, preparation or facilitation of the, of the entry into force and others. And the, the treaties are subject to uh, provisional application are not limited uh, to, uh, as I was told at the very beginning, to commodity agreements or uh, um, trade-related uh, uh, treaties. They cover now a very important uh, ground. They go from the limitation of borders to arms control and uh, uh, disarmament issues, humanitarian law, um, I mean, the, the law of the sea, as I said, uh, there is a, a vast array of grounds. In this context, the purpose of the guide is to contribute to the definition and better understanding of the legal regime uh, of provisional application, and in this matter, uh, it is intended to offer a useful but pragmatic uh, tool to um, states and international organizations when they are faced with the question of whether or not 
provisional application might be uh, included uh, in the uh, or might be agreed upon when uh, when uh, negotiating a treaty, either a bilateral one or a multilateral one. I hope this has been um, uh, of interest to you, and and I hope that it's been uh, particularly uh, helpful for your uh, future endeavors. Thank you very much.